Friends, I want to invite you again to take your Bible and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This morning, we're going to be looking at the passage that Paul read for us from verses 1 to 8. Now, for the person who wants to be a marathon runner, the most obvious thing they have to do is work on their endurance so that they have enough strength and stamina to actually finish the race. But when it comes to the actual race itself, it's just as important for that runner to meticulously study and follow the rules of the race. Because if they don't, then it's very easy to do something wrong and get penalized or worse, disqualified from the race. Now, last Sunday, there was uh, a major race event that took place called the Vienna Marathon. And in that race, a man by the name of Durera Harissa came first place. And, and he finished that, that grueling run, 42 kilometers. That's the, that's the length of a marathon, 42 kilometers in just over two hours and nine minutes. That is an incredible time. But after completing that race, in just a matter of minutes, he was disqualified because the soles of his shoes, the very bottom part of his shoes, were one centimeter thicker than what was allowed according to race regulations. One centimeter. That's all it took. And he was disqualified from the race. You see, people can have the greatest endurance and speed in the world, but if they don't run according to the rules of the race, then it's meaningless. Rules matter in the race. Now, you can say that the Christian life is a lot like a marathon race. And in this spiritual race, a race that we are all a part of, there are God-given rules in place that we must abide by if we are to run the race faithfully and finish well. In the first three chapters of this letter, the Apostle Paul talked a lot about the setting of this spiritual race. And for the Thessalonians, their, their, their course was filled with hostile persecution and satanic op opposition. So you can tell this wasn't just a chill walk in the park. This was a brutal course where the saints were greatly tested in their faith. And so having endurance is key. But they must endure the right way, following the right rules of the race, which is why when we get to chapter 4 of this letter, the Apostle Paul transitions to talking about the rules of this spiritual race. He has a lot more to say, but in this text, we're going to deal with the first three rules. So here's number one, keep on running. Now, this may not be an actual rule of a physical race, but in this spiritual race, it's a rule. Keep on running. Look with me at verse 1. Paul says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Now, first of all, I want you to notice that Paul is making this urgent request in the Lord Jesus. And then he says something very similar in the very next verse, verse 2, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. By evoking the name of the Lord Jesus, 
he's making it very clear to the Thessalonians that the instructions they received in the past and the instructions they're about to receive from him now in this letter are all from a divine authority. You see, these aren't some random, morally subjective, man-made rules. These are the righteous rules of a righteous king who is still reigning and presiding over our lives today. And so having clarified the divine authority of Christ behind his words, Paul goes on to remind them that they were already instructed in the rules of this spiritual race. Again, in verse 1, he says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing that you do so more and more. In the short time that Paul, Silas, and Timothy were with the Thessalonians, they used that time to diligently teach and instruct the church in the ways of Christ. The Thessalonian Christians knew what was expected of them. They knew the rules of this spiritual race and how to run it in such a way that was pleasing to God. And we learned that by the grace of God, they were actually running the race well. That's what he adds on right at the end of, of, of verse 1. He says um, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, do so more and more. We need to understand that Paul's not writing this chapter as some sort of rebuke to the Thessalonians. Rather, on the contrary, he, he means to encourage them by identifying this evidence of grace of their faithfulness. But following this word of encouragement, he follows along with an important exhortation. He says, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. That's the first big rule of this spiritual race. Keep on running. Just as you are doing, do so more and more. Don't stop. Don't give up in the middle, even if it hurts, even if it gets super hard. By God's grace, some of you are doing well in this spiritual race. You're living in obedience. You're, you're serving faithfully. You're walking in love. You're running hard. Praise the Lord for that. But here is my exhortation for you. Keep on running. Keep on going. Move forward. Others of you have been struggling in this spiritual race because of trials and sins and the difficult circumstances of our day that are weighing heavy on your heart. And to you I say, friend, this race isn't over. You may have slowed down and you may have lost some precious time, but listen to what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1. He says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured for sinners such from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary and faint hearted. See, the reality is we're not saved by following the rules of this spiritual race. We are saved by Jesus Christ. 
He is the only hope for our salvation. He is the founder and perfecter of our faith. You see, Jesus is the one who ran the race perfectly. He's the one who endured in holiness straight to the end, even though on his course there lay before him a cross. And on that cross, Jesus stood in our place and paid the penalty of death for all of our sins. But we must put our faith in him. Trust in him to save you because he can and he will. And don't only trust him once at the very beginning, but continue to put your trust in him and then run your heart out for Jesus. He is the source of your strength. He is the model for you to follow and he is your reward at the end. That's rule number one, keep on running. And here's rule number two, as you run, don't interfere with other runners. You know, Christians can sometimes get really caught up with this loaded question, what is God's will for my life? Have you ever asked that question? Well, maybe some of you are asking that question right now. Well, what is, what is God's will for my life? And in one sense, that's a very hard question to answer when it comes to the specific details and decisions of our individual lives. But in another sense, the answer to that question is remarkably simple. Look at, at verse 3. Paul carries on and he says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. I mean, it doesn't get more straightforward than that. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whatever your relationship status is, Christian, God's clear desire and will for your life is to be holy. And I, and I say holy because the word sanctification is actually the same word that's used for holiness. To be holy, as we just heard before, kids, is, is to be different. God is holy. He is unique. He is different from us. And so this call for us to be holy in its most simplest definition means to be spiritually separate from the rest of the world and fully devoted to God, to be like God, to be holy as he is holy. Leviticus chapter 20 verse 26 says, you shall be holy to me, this is God speaking, you shall be holy to me for I am the Lord, for I the Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Separated from the people, separated from the rest of the unbelieving world so that you should be mine. Since you belong to God, you're to be different from the rest of the world, to be different from the ways of the world. You're to love him first and foremost above anything and everything else, and you're to obey him and grow in your obedience to him. See, holiness is this massive theme in the Bible that includes all of the, of the, of the Christian life. And, and for the remainder of this letter from chapters 4 all the way to chapter 5, he's going to talk about what holiness looks like in the realm of sexual purity, in the realm of brotherly love, in the realm of work, and, and other areas of our lives. But in our passage today, in verses 3 to 8, Paul's focus 
is on the issue of sexual purity. Now, as a quick side note, let me just say that I, I recognize that Pastor Paul preached a very powerful sermon on this topic just two weeks ago. And so you might be wondering why we're talking about this again. Let me just be clear, we're not some church that is obsessed about this topic. To tell you the truth, we never actually planned for this to happen this way. Paul, Paul had his series in Ephesians all planned out. And as many of you know, I've been working my way through this letter, 1 Thessalonians, since back in March. And with every opportunity, I've just been uh, progressing through the letter. And it just so happened that right after Paul preached on killing sexual sin two weeks ago, my next section in this letter was this passage that deals with the same topic. And yes, I probably could have preached another sermon, uh, another passage, a one-off sermon. But at the same time, I couldn't help but wonder if in the mysterious providence of God, he has ordained the preaching schedule to line up this way because this is something that we as a church need to hear again. And so I've decided to trust the Lord and that he has sovereignly put this schedule together and I'm just going to keep working my way through this letter. And so here we are again, Paul addressing the issue of sexual immorality. Now, it's not that difficult to see that in our world today, in our society, we live in a very hyper-sexualized culture. And, and in such a world of sexual impurity, what does holiness mean for Christians? Well, first it means staying away from all sexual sin. Look again at verse 3 in your Bibles. Paul says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Right there, what you have is a complete and comprehensive statement. There is no room for moderation here. There's no place to toy with sexual sins. There is no allowance for what we like to think as the less sexual sins of our day. As we heard two weeks ago, the word sexual immorality is that general word that encompasses all kinds and forms of sexual sins. The Apostle Paul is talking about everything from fantasizing at night to reading erotic novels, to watching pornography, or even watching very sexualized and revealing scenes and movies, inappropriate touching, fornication, adultery. See, whether it's the sexual sin of the mind, the heart, or the body, we are to refrain from all of it, period. You need to stay away from all forms of sexual sin. Stay away from all of it. And the flip side of that coin is you need to stay in control of your own body. That's where Paul goes next. Stay in control of your own body. Again, in verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. First, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And then verse 4, That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. See, the Lord has created us body, mind, and soul. He's created us as very physical, real human beings with physical desires and cravings. But as Christians, we are called to beat our body into submission to holiness. Don't let your body and its cravings determine what you do. 
your body is not your king. Jesus is your king. And so let his truth govern your lives. And his truth says that you are to control your body first in holiness, which means that you need to recognize that your body is not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Use your body to do the good things that God has prepared and called you to do for the sake of his glory. And secondly, you're to control your body in honor, which means in a respectful and dignified way. See, when people look at your life and see how you live your life and say that that person is living an honorable life. One of the ways to better understand how to control your own body in holiness and in honor is to think about what the opposite of those things are. What, what, what's the opposite of self-control in holiness and in honor? Well, fortunately, Paul tells us in the very next verse, again, verse 4, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and, in, and honor. And then verse 5, here's the contrast, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. Okay, so there you have it. You have, you have holiness and honor, and then contrary to that, the direct contrast is the passion of lust. To live in the passion of lust is basically to give in to the lustful desires of your heart and go wherever those corrupt desires take you. And that way of life is unholy, and dishonorable. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameful acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. This is an example of what the Gentiles were like. Gentiles, in, in, in this context, the first Thessalonians uh, basically just means unbelievers. What was characteristic of unbelievers is that they gave up control of their bodies and pursued all forms of immoral sexual desires. They did not stay in control of their bodies. They gave up control to their desires. And the reason they did that is because they did not know God. Look at how verse 5 ends. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. This was and is the defining difference between Christians and the unbeliever. They don't know God. There's a big difference between knowing things about God and knowing God. The first has to do with information, but the second has to do with relationship, a real relationship. Unbelievers have no relationship with the Lord. He's, he's not their Savior and Lord, and because of that, they continue on in unrepentant sexual sin. But we need to understand here that there is an important implication for us as believers. And the implication is this. Unbelievers don't know God, therefore they live in the passion of lust. But you know God. 
By his grace, he has opened your eyes to the beauty of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he has brought you into a loving relationship with him. And because you know God, you should act differently from the rest of the unbelieving world. And part of that means maintaining pure and holy relationships with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That's where Paul goes next. He addresses how we're to treat one another, or or, or more accurately, how not to treat one another in the faith. Verse 6, he says, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Now, although it's true that we should never sin in any kind of way against other fellow Christians, Paul isn't speaking so broadly here about all kinds and and every kinds of sin. The words in this matter is actually pointing back and referring to all the stuff that he just talked about in verses 4 and 5. He's talking about sexual immorality. He's talking about not sinning against our brothers and sisters in Christ with the sins of sexual immorality. Friends, we need to make sure that as we run in this spiritual race that we are not wrongly interfering with our fellow believers who are also running the same race with us. Now, some of the most obvious ways this happens is when Sexual abuse takes place in the life of the church from a person in authority to a person who's not in authority. Or when an affair takes place between two members of a church, a woman takes another woman's husband and commits adultery with him, the first woman has deeply sinned against her sister. I mean, those are very, some, some very direct ways sexual, um, sexual sins wrong a brother or a sister in the church But I don't think that kind of direct sin between people is the only way this occurs. Think about it. What about the the, the young guy who's living on his own and and, and, and is in his room late at night watching pornography? He's not interacting with anyone else in the church. Nobody even knows that this is going on. But does that mean that his private sins have no effect on others in the church? Well, no. No. I would actually argue that it does. Because what often happens to someone like that? Well, he probably feels ashamed of himself to the point that he he decides to skip church. Or if he comes to church, he avoids people. Or he puts up a facade that really everything's going well, which can be a form of lying to your brothers and sisters. And he probably doesn't serve at church because he feels unworthy. And guess who suffers? The church suffers because of that. You see, sexual sins that are both public and private affect others around us. We wrong our fellow brothers and sisters in the faith when we're not abstaining from sexual immorality and we just give in to the passion of lust. I mean, just think about some of the devastating consequences of sexual sin. Marriages end up in divorce. Children grow up in broken homes. Families in the church leave. And there is some deep emotional trauma and pain that sticks with people sometimes for the rest of their lives. Those are the very real life consequences of sexual sin. But do you know what? 
as bad as those things are, that's actually not the worst part. In one sense, if you look at it from the light of eternity, those are all very temporary consequences. But when it comes to unrepentant sexual sin, there are eternal consequences. Look again at verse 6. Paul says that no one transgressed and wronged his brother in this matter. Why? Because the Lord is an avenger. In all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. You see, there is a day coming when the Lord will avenge all of his people who have been wronged by sexual sin. I mean, listen, we, we need to be careful that we don't miss the tone and the seriousness of these words. The Lord is an avenger. Paul uses that same word in the second letter, in his second letter to the Thessalonians, where he talks about that final day when Jesus returns with all of his mighty angels in, in flaming fire. And then in verse 8 in chapter 1 of first, in Second Thessalonians, he says, inflicting vengeance... Same word there, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. When the Bible says that the Lord is an avenger, this isn't like some father who is chastising his child. No, this is more like a just judge condemning a wicked sinner. This isn't loving discipline. This is righteous retribution. And this wasn't the first time the Thessalonians heard these sobering words. Verse 6 ends with, with the words, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. They've been taught this before. And it wasn't just a passing comment in a sermon. No, no, this truth came to them with all seriousness and weightiness. They were solemnly warned. Which means that on the day Christ returns to judge, and the, judge the living and the dead, there will be no excuse for their ongoing unrepentant sexual sin. Friends, you will not be able to stand on that day before the Lord and say, I never knew. You just can't say that because it's not true. You did know. If you were here two weeks ago, then Pastor Paul preached about killing sin and you heard very clearly why you must put this sin to death. And in case you didn't hear that sermon, or if this is your first time with us, then let me try to say this as clearly as I can. If you do not confess and repent of your sexual sin, if you do not ask Jesus for forgiveness, then he will unleash his vengeance upon you on the last day and you will go to hell and suffer eternal punishment. That is the solemn warning of the Bible. In Grace Fellowship Church, you need to understand that I am talking to you. I'm talking to you, members, Christians. See, sometimes 
Christians in the Reformed tradition can get dangerously confused about the nature of salvation. I mean, we believe in the perseverance of the saints, right? The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. That's great. I believe in that with all of my heart. That is a precious truth to hold on to. But believing in the perseverance of the saints doesn't mean we just overlook these warnings in the Bible like it's some kind of fake threat from God. Oh, brothers and sisters, don't forget that we worship a God who never lies. He never lies. And don't miss the fact that, that the warnings like this in the Bible are not primarily addressed to, Christian, to, to unbelievers. I mean, just think about it. Who is Paul writing to here? Who is his main audience? He's warning the Thessalonian Christians, not the unbelievers. Now, I'm not ultimately saying that a Christian can lose his or her salvation. Again, I wholeheartedly believe in the perseverance of the saints. But if someone claims to be a Christian, okay, claims to be a Christian, and yet ignores these warnings and carries on in unrepentant sin because they believe it doesn't matter, then that person will prove by their actions that they were never truly believers in the first place. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, it says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have what? continued with us but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us a true christian is known by the fruit of perseverance and actually in the loving kindness of the lord one of the methods that the lord uses to preserve his people is the warning passages in the bible you see, he warns us. He warns us very seriously because he loves us, because he cares for us. And a true Christian will heed these divine warnings. Take it seriously. Take it to heart. Believe it with all of their heart and follow it by the grace of God. That is one of the ways the Lord preserves his people and enables them to persevere in the faith. And so, brothers and sisters, take God at his word. Take these warnings very seriously and let these solemn warnings motivate you to holiness. The Lord is an avenger. This doesn't mean that you no longer have any hope for salvation because you've committed sexual sins as a professing believer. Yes, God will have vengeance but that's the whole point of the cross. On the cross, Jesus Christ took on the vengeance of God so that you wouldn't have to. You see, friends, there is still grace today. You can still repent of your sins today. This vengeance of God will only be un unleashed on those who do not repent and do not turn away from their sexual sins. Friends, there is grace. Repent. The gospel is still powerful today. So don't make this fatal mistake of presuming on grace and thinking that it's just okay to continue on in sin because you and the judge are good. Now, just because you're good with the judge of this spiritual race doesn't mean that you can just go on breaking all the rules. 
That brings us to rule number three. Stay in your lane. Verse 7, Paul goes on and he says, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. That's your lane right there. It's the lane of holiness. And, and I know from experience that lane can seem pretty narrow and hard at times. But listen, it's the only lane that leads to the finish line where you will receive the crown of glory and everlasting life. If you jump out of that lane and you stay out of that lane, then you're going to get disqualified from this spiritual race. Now notice here who ultimately does the calling. It's God. God is the one who calls us into a life of purity. And, and that's important to recognize because it helps us to better understand verse 8. Verse 8, Therefore, whoever disregards this, the call to holiness, disregards not man, but God. You see, to push aside and ignore this call to holiness isn't just a matter of disregarding what I say. And it's not even a matter of disregarding what the Apostle Paul said. But no, it's much more severe than that. When you ignore this call to holiness, you are ultimately disregarding and disobeying the Lord God himself. Which tells us that when the Lord takes vengeance on that last day, he won't only avenge his people who have been wronged and hurt by sexual sin. No, he will also take vengeance for himself because he was first and foremost sinned against. Remember King David's confession in Psalm 51 after he committed adultery with Bathsheba? What does he say in Psalm 51 verse 4? He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He sinned against someone else, but he's saying his sin was primarily against God. All sexual sin is a sin against the holy God. But look at how this warning is coupled with grace. Yes, God is holy. Yes, he will take vengeance upon unrepentant sinners who disregard his word. But this is also the same God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Right? That's how verse 8 ends. God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, if we just study the, 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 the function and the work of the Holy Spirit in all the Bible, we learn some amazing truths about how the Holy Spirit is a comforter. The Holy Spirit is a helper. The Holy Spirit illuminates our hearts and our minds and opens up our eyes to see more of Christ. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us in our prayers. But beyond those amazing truths, we also learn that the Holy Spirit of God sanctifies us and makes us holy. 2 Thessalonians verse two, chapter 2, verse 13, Paul writes, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, and belief in the truth. 
This is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the agent of sanctification. The Holy Spirit is given to you to help you to become more holy as God is holy. The call to holiness and sexual purity may seem like a very high calling. And yes, it is. This is a very high calling. But you need to remember that God has not left you to run in this spiritual race of holiness all on your own. He's given you his Holy Spirit so that by the help of his Spirit, you may run your race well and finish in the end. Some of you may have come here this morning feeling trapped in a pattern of destructive sexual sin. And it's not like you haven't tried to, to kill this sin before. As a matter of fact, you've tried thousands and millions of times to, to get this under control. But you haven't been successful. Brother or sister, if that's you, then I want to urge you to never give up and never come to terms with this simply being one of those besetting sins that is going to stay with you for the rest of your lives. Yes, you're right in thinking that you're powerless to do anything about your sin on your own. But listen, God isn't. And God has given you his spirit in order to sanctify you and make you holy. Look, killing sexual sin is possible. Never watching pornography again for the rest of your life, life is, is possible. Being holy is possible. I have met older men who have lived their lives this way. It is possible. Why? Because sin no longer has dominion over your life. Jesus Christ has set you free from the grip of sin. So Christian, keep running the race of holiness and run it with confidence because Jesus promised that he will hold you fast. And when you have run your race and you have crossed that finish line, there we will come together again as the people of God and together we will celebrate and together we will feast in the house of Zion. Let's pray. And so Father, our, our hope is in you. Lord, give us the grace to run the race that is set before us well, to endure in holiness, believing that our Savior Jesus will hold us fast. We love you and we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for sending your son Jesus to be our Savior and to lead the way. And I pray that all of us would keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and we would run this race well. In his name we pray, amen.